Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. So cash rules everything around me. That's the title of the sermon. Um, so, uh, yeah, my message today, like Brandon said, is going to be the first of three different sermons focused on the topic of uh, biblical stewardship of our finances, right? So I see the excitement on everybody's faces. <laughs> it's an exciting topic. Calm down, everybody. Um, and my hope is that it would, uh, it would teach, that we'd learn, that it would preach, we'd be convicted, and that we'd, that we'd apply it to our lives, right? That we'd actually turn it into wisdom that we're using on a daily basis, because the thing about finances is, is that's, that's what we do with them. We use them on a daily basis. We get to do that every single day. It's not like we have to necessarily think to ourselves, well, maybe, maybe in time I'll, yeah, I'm going to work towards changing these things. Like, you'll literally be able to walk out of this building today and um, start making changes to the, the way you use your money in a, more, in a more biblical way. Now, real quick, um, before I get into it, I imagine some of you are thinking like, okay, why, why is Nick doing this? Why is Nick talking about finance, right? This, the dude who, I don't know what you think of me, skateboards or occasionally raps in main service, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know how I became that guy, okay? Um, but uh, a little bit about me real quick. I have a uh, professional b- uh, background in finance, economics, and investing. I studied economics at uh, at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, six years ago or so, and studied that for my undergrad, uh, my undergraduate's degree. I've been working at a local Kansas City investment firm for that same amount of time. The last year, specifically, my job has been to teach, and to really simplify it, it's been to teach new and established financial professionals about these topics. Now, with that being said, that, like, I'm not saying that to say, you got to believe everything I say now. I'm, like, I'm an expert, because I don't believe that to be the case. Um, before I am anything, a skateboarder, a pseudo-rapper, or a financial professional, I am a Christian. Okay? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, as I believe many of, of you are in the room as well. Right? So what that means is that none of us are above knowing and living according to what the Bible says about how we should handle our finances, all stigmas aside. I know I don't look like a finance bro. I know I'm not, you know, I'm not even six feet tall. So like, can I, can I, can I be a finance bro by technical definition? I don't think so. Um, so listen, there are fruitful people in this room, right? There are fruitful people. There are people that love to study God's word, people that love to invest the word of God into the lives of other people. Uh, and then there are those who, you know, are, are desiring to be that way, that they want their lives to look like that as well. And in order for our lives to look that way, we have to know God's perspective on all matters of life. And we have to live according to all those matters of lives, according to his perspective. We have to know what his perspective is in terms of how he views souls, in terms of how he forgives, what he considers to be urgent, what he believes to be of consequence. We have to know what he thinks about all these things. And these things are the romantic aspects of our faith, more or less, right? Um, And of all those things I just listed, you know, that these are the things that 
that true disciples of G- Jesus Christ dream about, that they, that they think about on a daily basis. But, and, and Miles alluded to this yesterday in his sermon, but there's a lot more in the Word of God. There's all these technicalities of our everyday lives that don't feel so romantic, right? They feel even bothersome in, in a lot of ways, okay? And, and thus we get to the topic of biblical finances. Um, you know, when it comes to personal finance, guys, the world sees how Christians spend their money. They see it, okay? They see it. And, and frankly put, what they see is they see themselves. They see themselves. Generally speaking, the church and the world alike are unified in the sense that they both sort of suck at managing finances altogether. Um, you just look at statistics about the state of the, the nation's economy on a macroeconomic level, and it's, and it's plainly known. Um, financial management in American culture, and probably in other cultures too, I don't know necessarily, I haven't looked, I'm not going to say I know something about other cultures that I don't, but um, it goes unconsidered. And there are understandable reasons for that. It's not fun. First of all, it, it can be a driver of stress and fear for many of us. It, it, it's been that for me in the past. You know, if people can remain ignorant to where they are in terms of, of their finances, then they don't have to make changes to their lives like anything else, right? Let's just remain ignorant. And topically, personal finance, just like as a topic, is total taboo to discuss nowadays. Like we can't really have a conversation about it. Husbands and wives just gear up for an argument if it's going to come up. Young people, people our age, dismiss it altogether. And again, that's because it's, uh, it's, it's not romantic. There's nothing ba- uh, romantic about balancing a budget or keeping a steady eye on our bank accounts. Nothing at all. And even to an extent, it feels worldly, you know? Like it feels a little bit worldly to concern ourselves with our economic positions. Right? Does anybody agree with that? That was misdirection, okay? That's a lie. That's a lie. The truth is, that's a lie that Christians tell themselves to avoid the responsibility that they have in terms of their individual walks with the Lord and the aspects of it that are not fun and social. For many of us, and I, and I, and I love you guys enough to say this, and, and it's been said, but for many of us, it's time to grow up in this area of our lives. It's time. No one, no, there's not a person in this room who can afford to have their life's main priority be about like having fun. There's not a single person in this room. There's, there's space for that. There's space for fun and joy, but that can't be our life's main priority at the point of life that we're at. You know, if you think knowing the state of and planning for your finances is too worldly of a thing for you to give your time to, only to instead be frivolous with your finances, to make decisions with them on, a, on a, an emotional case-by-case basis, well, by avoiding the feeling of being worldly, you've become extra-worldly. you become extra-worldly. You've decided to say no to what God has called you to do and say yes to exactly what the world does. You've chosen disobedience by compartmentalizing your walk with the Lord. That's what we do when we say, nah, God, I'm cool on my finances. Everything else you got my attention on, but I'm good over here. Like, I don't need to worry about that. So for the next few weeks, we're going to do some accounting of ourselves, all right? We're going we're gonna to be examining our ability to steward our finances from God's perspective, and that's actually going to be the focus for our message today. The world's, we're going to take a look at the world's perspective on finance, on specifically money and spending, and we're going to contrast that with God's perspective on money and spending. Okay, so let's find out what perspective we operate according to. 
God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for this time. Um, God, thank you for the clarity of your word. Um, God, thank you for this whole weekend. Like, it, it's, been so, it's been so good. It's been so good for me personally. Um, and God, I just, I just pray that we would all feel more encouraged to make godly decisions, that we would be more mature in how we handle and steward all of what belongs to you. Um, God, I, I pray that you'd bless this time, that, you'd, that, you'd, uh, that, you'd, you know, that we'd hear from you, Lord. Um, take my nerves away. Um, we just, we just want to be edified by your word. And God, I pray that uh, we'd, we'd truly consider our own ways um, as, we, as we take a look at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so heads up. This, is gonna, this, this topic, biblical finance, is going to be a mix of preaching and teaching throughout uh, these messages. Okay, and we're going to be Especially today, we're going to be touching on some ideas that the secular economic world has established and observed about themselves, okay? Because if we do that, it's going to help us see how the world operates in relation to these topics. But it's also going to allow all of us to figure out what the world considers to be valuable, or at least it's going to help us figure out how to determine uh, how that can be done. You know, we're going, to, we're going to hopefully be able to see what the world thinks money and spending should be used for first, okay? And in that, I think we'll probably learn some stuff about ourselves also. We're going to consider our own ways, okay? That's what we're going to do. So with keeping all of that in mind, we're going to begin by asking the question, what gives money value? All right? Have you guys ever asked that question before? Alex, you've asked that question before? Amen, dude. Um, now, I imagine most, most people have not uh, asked that question. And and real quick, guys, if you took the biblical finance class uh, or the biblical counseling class and you had that, that finance section, some of this will be a little bit of review. Um, so just heads up to you all. Uh, but today we're going to start off by talking about the U.S. dollar, okay? Because that's the currency that we use as a means for exchange in the place that we all live. So if we're going to talk about finances, I think it's appropriate that we learn a little bit about the dollar, uh, the dollar bills that we, that we use in society, the way, you know. The, the currency that we use. Okay, so this is going to be very exciting, all right? And, and take as much notes as you want. Um, really, it's, it's, again, just important to consider our own ways here. But the U.S. dollar is what's called a fiat currency, okay? And what a fiat currency is, is a declared form of legal tender that's used for exchange. Okay, so fiat, that word means declared. That's what it means. So it's been declared that this is the currency we will use to exchange in the market economies that we operate within, all right? Now, one very specific thing about this type of currency is that it has nothing backing it, okay? It's got nothing backing it. There's no intrinsic, there's no fixed, there's no predetermined value that the U.S. dollar contains in its current state. This means that the money we earn, save, invest, and spend all on its own doesn't have any actual worth. You wouldn't think that necessarily in the way that we, you know, that society tends to operate around it. Um, and it doesn't have any worth in the sense that there's no tangible thing that our money is representing, which is stored somewhere else. So that wasn't always the case. Several decades ago, our money used to be backed by gold, and that was called the gold standard, okay? And uh, what, what that meant is that, again, our dollar bills used to represent a certain amount of gold that was being stored somewhere else. And gold itself has a form of actual value because there's a, uh, there's a, there's, it's precious, it's a precious resource. There's a scarcity of it. There's not an unlimited supply of gold. And things that are limited in supply contain like intrinsic value. 
like real value, okay? Um, this is how supply and demand works. This is why certain baseball cards are worth a lot more than others because there's less of them in, um, in existence and the more rare they are, the more desired they are, the more valuable they are, okay? So this, uh, this is just, you know, some, some interesting stuff about our dollars. So anyway, in 1971, President Nixon lifted the gold standard and since then, the U.S. dollar's value in the marketplace and the value of our money has just been perceived and agreed upon by buyers and sellers of good, of goods. Like we just, we just, we agree that the money is worth something, just purely by agreement. In short, because the U.S. dollar isn't backed by any sort of physical resource, as consumers, before we spend and distribute money, it's, it's assumed that we're asking ourselves a question, and, and this is assumed by like economists in the world. It's assumed that we're asking ourselves a question of, is this commodity, this thing I'm going to buy, really worth this much money to me? Okay? Because when we're doing that, at the moment we're spending money, we're determining what the value of our dollar actually is to us. And also, therefore, the value of our time, because after all, we gave away our time to earn that dollar. Did we not? So again, the question we might ask is, do I want to spend this 60 bucks on this pair of shoes, or whatever it may be, this video game, uh, or these groceries? Um, asking ourselves this question is what economists call the rational consumer thought process, okay? Now, uh, the thing about that is it assumes consumers think rationally, okay? <laughs> and and, I, and I, don't, I don't think consumers do. I don't think most of us do as we're going about exchanging our time and the dollars that represent our time for stuff. I don't think we think rationally. Um, I, don't think, I don't think the world thinks rationally, which leads us to the question, what, well, leads me to the question. I'm taking you guys there with me. Um, what are people thinking when they're spending their money? What are you all thinking when you're spending your money? When you buy that 12th cup of coffee in three days, what are you thinking? What's going through your head? What's your actual thought process? If we can answer these questions, and if we can identify the spending process and the patterns of the world and of ourselves, then we know what you know, the world's perspective on money and finance is. We know what it is, and it's important to know that because that helps us more clearly see the stark contrast of God's perspective on the same topic. Okay, so my first key point. How people spend their money reveals everything about what they think is valuable. <clears throat> How people spend their money reveals everything about what they think is valuable. Okay, um, so let's talk about the world's view on money, and even more specifically, let's talk about the spending patterns that we see in the world, okay? The, and, 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 you know, what, what spending patterns are, um, simply put, they're just observations of how people uh, consume things by, by the spending of their money. Everybody has patterns of spending that they operate according to in their lives. And there's, there's more patterns than just the two we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two. But I think these two do reveal a lot about the general population. Um, so the two we're going to be looking at is, um, well... If we look at the world, we'll see that the world largely tends to spend money and consume resources conspicuously and by emulation, okay? Now, I know both those words are super annoying. Um, I didn't make them up. <clears throat> Let's talk about these for a little bit. Okay, so conspicuous consumption. This is the first spending pattern that we're going to observe. Conspicuous consumption. 
So not there? Um, this is one way that people spend their money, okay? And to put words to it, it is the act of squandering a resource for the purpose of drawing envious attention, okay? Conspicuous means, that word itself means to stand out and be clearly visible. So this spending pattern refers to those consumers who purchase luxury items with the intention of demonstrating wealth, income, and status rather than using something for its true function. So this, this type of spending is an attempt by a consumer to uh, display eminence amongst peers without caring about the actual use of the consumed good. So my mom was telling me about Brittany Mahomes. I don't keep up with Brittany Mahomes. Um, <laughs> my mom followers are on, are on Instagram. And she was telling me that for her daughter's third birthday, third birthday, she bought her a two to $4,000 Chanel bag, somewhere in that price range. <clears throat> so that's conspicuous consumption. Like that's, that's what it is. She did that so she could take a photo and you know, so I don't, I don't know what people do with that. I don't know. But um, nonetheless, it's clearly seen. It's visible. My son is right around that age range, coming up on three years old. He's actually hung out with Patrick Mahomes' daughter at a park. They hung out one day just by chance. We ran into him. Um, Brittany did not pay us any attention. But, so if you're hearing this, Brittany, no. Um, but I got my son a $6 monster truck from Walmart just a week ago in Georgia, um, and I got home and gave it to him as a gift. We were at the discipleship conference, and the dude acted like I gave him a million bucks. <laughs> like, he, he, her, Brittany Mahomes' daughter did not need that. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> this is a vain way to spend money, and it, re, it results in vain lifestyles. Now, there are Christians in the world who, who are in a tax bracket that, you know, they can spend conspicuously. Maybe not in this room. Maybe, maybe a few of us. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, you know, the world sees it when Christians spend their money that way. And what the world sees is that Christians, that maybe those Christians, whatever it may be, Christians don't have their affection set on eterni- uh, things of eternity. They don't. Like, that's what that reveals. Um, no, the world sees... Uh, how Christians spend that way and they, they think, okay, so I've got a shared perspective on what money is good for. The same thing as that person, right? So Colossians chapter three, verse two says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. <clears throat> it doesn't say set your affections on being noticed by peers and impressing others with what you have, which are on the earth, right? How we steward our finances through the spending of them directly reflects what our affections are set on. And, and, and what we think is valuable. Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, and there will your time be, and there will your efforts be, and there will be all those things that we're supposed to be using for the Lord. Um, and that's gonna be, we're gonna keep seeing that throughout the next couple of weeks, this, this Matthew 6, 21 verse. Now, it's also worth noting that this spending pattern arises from a drunken thought process. It's never sober-minded to go into any setting while being controlled by the thought of what will everyone think about me? What is everyone going to think when they see me? Right? It's never sober-minded to enter into situations that way. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 says this. Paul tells us, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Uh, now, Paul makes it a point to advise women against consuming in a conspicuous manner, and just, hold on, like I see some, some people looking at me funny. Um, you know, there's context here that we're not going to go over right now. But 
Paul just spent eight verses telling men how they ought to act in their households and in the church. And then he, and he switches over. Oh, also women. And he starts with this. Now, neither of these passages are mutually exclusive, okay? Men consume conspicuously. They did then and they do now. Just scroll through your Instagram Explore page and you'll, you'll see a bunch of conspicuous things happening. Um, ultimately, this letter was written to Christians about how they should behave in the church and in their households and therefore before the world, right? And spending for the purpose of being noticed, gaining reputation, self-assurance, self-security, uh, spending conspicuously as the world does is identified to the apostle to the church or is identified by the apostle to the churches as a misuse of resources, right? It's bad stewardship. I think it's interesting that Paul is noticing these same types of things that economists in the world are noticing today. Now, the other dominant spending pattern, and I think one that will be more related to, is called pecuniary emulation. Now, the word pecuniary, and real quick, to put words to it, pecuniary uh, emulation is the ambitious imitation of upper-class spending habits in order to keep up with a perceived standard of living, okay? So pecuniary means ha having to do with money. That's all that means. Anything that has, um, has to do with money has a pecuniary aspect or characteristic to it. Emulation is actually talked about in scripture. And it means having envy of others and zeal for the world. That's one of the works of the flesh that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. You can see it in verse 20 there. Um, so really, when people are consuming in this manner, they're spending with the intention of living within the bounds of perceived societal decency. Now, we all do this. Okay, this is, this is, like the, this is where the, uh, the term or the saying came up, keeping up with the Joneses, right? Which, which ironically is about like trying to keep up with these neighbors in the suburbs, name the Joneses. And I, and I actually have neighbors that are the Joneses, and they're right over there. They're great. But I'm trying to keep up with you guys all the dang time. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, this is what we do when we say, well, I can't afford it, but I gotta have it, right? Like this is, this is what that is. This is actually the faulty spending habit of lower and middle income class households and individuals that cause finances to go off, off the deep end, okay? Living and spending beyond our means is quite literally giving the flesh what it wants by way of our finances. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter five, verse 26, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, when we give way to, the, to our flesh and the works of it, the, the, the works of the Spirit have a difficult time being made manifest in our lives. Okay, so this is something we have to understand. Our spending, how we spend our money can quench the Holy Spirit. You know, stewarding our finances incorrectly will prevent God from being able to work through us. It will. We have to learn to admit to ourselves when we can't afford something. And that's a much easier thing to do when the world standard is not our own standard. So my next key point is trying to keep up with the world standard will make you unconcerned with God's standard. God does not care one single bit about your devices. He doesn't care one single bit about your clothes, how big your house is, what kind of vehicle you drive, how cute your new apartment's gonna be. Like he doesn't, he doesn't care about any of that. And he definitely doesn't want us to live in a way that's pleasing to the world. Like he doesn't want us to do that. But that's what our spending reflects. Colossians chapter three, verse 22 says, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing 
God. You know, what's motivating us to spend our dollars should not be to please and satisfy the eyes of those around us and in turn gain self-pleasure from how they perceive us, right? Like that's, that's, that's a gross thing that humans do. But rather our motivation should be to do the will of God in singleness of heart with a healthy fear of what he thinks about us. Like quite literally, we should be spending our money in a way where God can look down on us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Like that's, that's, what, that's what our money, our spending habits should, should reflect. Our security should not be found in our bank accounts. Our standard of living should not be set by the expectations of the world. Our self-esteem should not be based on what we can and can't afford at any given time. But so often it is. And the reason for that is, is what our own spending patterns likely reveal to us if we truly consider our own ways. And that's my third key point. The world and the church share a perspective on the consumption of resources. And when I say church, you know, I don't mean a building. I mean the people. I mean, I mean you and me and every single one of us in here. You know, we've commingled the world standard into our own and we've forgotten that God has a completely different agenda for how we are to steward all of what is actually his. So how do we fix this? We start living according to the Lord's standard and perspective with our finances. That's how we fix it. So let's become aware of, of what that is. Okay, and we're going to start by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Okay, so for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Plainly put, and with no room for misinterpretation in God's word, we're taught that the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, we also see that with this love of money, we will inevitably err from the faith and be in a position where we've pierced ourselves with many sorrows. And some of you know people that are in horrible financial positions, right? And, and the sorrow they experience, the, the, the anxiety they carry around with them on a daily basis, it's daunting, right? It's, it's daunting. Like finances uh, can, can be such a hardship for people in this world, but oftentimes, that's the result of viewing money from the world's perspective. I mean, if our financial situation is where our contentment in life is found, then our financial situation will also drive all of our discontentment in life, right? It'll be our upset. If we're lovers of our currency and what we can gain with it, the inevitable result of that is dissatisfaction in life. And that's the thing about finding satisfaction in life that things, uh, in things that aren't the Lord. It cannot be done. It can't be done. The reason we end up piercing ourselves with many sorrows when it comes to money is because our money was never supposed to be our rock. It was never supposed to be the foundation that we built our lives on. It was never supposed to be the goal that we were working towards, right? Jesus Christ is our rock, and Jesus Christ is our foundation. And like James said yesterday, you can't be working on two foundations at the same time, right? But that's what we're doing when we compartmentalize our walk with him. We've got Jesus over here. We've got our careers over here. We've got the money that we're earning over here. We've got our stuff over here. And man, this, this, this actually just requires a ton of attention. And all of that attention uh, should be going towards building that foundation that's based on the Lord. Jesus Christ only provided us with resources so that we could have functioning tools for currency, a means of exchange, 
to use according to his perspective and his worldview, not so that we could let it become our God, not so that we could use it to, to make ourselves, if even just for a moment, feel like God's. But that's, you know, that's what so many of us end up doing, some with intention, <clears throat> some by accident due to ignorance, but it's such a normal thing for people to get into a position where they're living for money and for what it can get them. And it's an easy thing, to, like I don't, I don't wanna dismiss the fact that it's easy for that to happen, right? And I think that's why Paul says with, with such assurance, like what he says in this verse, it, we're so connected to it. We, can't, we cannot get away from money if we're gonna live in modern culture. And we, you know, most of us are not gonna try and go build a life out on a farm and, and live sustainably. Like most of us are not gonna do that. That wouldn't even be a very Christian thing to do of you because all these technicalities are telling us how to operate within the culture we live in, right? Um, but man, like we live in these market economies that we live in. And as long as we can remember, like as, as students of the Bible, as long as we can remember that all of the economies we live in, all these markets that we operate within exist within God's economy, then we can keep a straight perspective. We can do that. God has made it plainly known what it is that he wants us to be living for. The Lord wants us to be seeking him first in all aspects of our lives, finances included. Matthew chapter six, verses 30 through 33 says this. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have needs, that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Okay, so see, our God is a good father who knows the needs of his children. And he promises that he'll make those, those necessities, he'll make sure that they're added unto our lives if we choose to make him the priority of our lives. Now, his expectation is that we would make him that priority in both spiritual and non-spiritual things. And this has been, I think it, it got brought up in every one of the sermons over the last two days. Uh, but it's true. He's made that clear to us in Luke 16, verse 13. For where, you know, where God tells us that we can't serve two masters in this life, right? We can't. We're gonna end up picking a side and the one we don't pick, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna despise that side and we're gonna cling to the side we choose. <clears throat> you know, and um, it's either God or mammon. And mammon, you know, unrighteous mammon is a direct reference to, to currency, but mammon itself is just uh, things personified in opposition to the Lord. Um, so, so, you know, What's gonna be our master in life? What do our current spending habits say our master in life is? And God is good to have warned us against this. He wants his people to know that trusting in riches and living for them will ruin our testimonies before the world. But he also wants us to know what uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28 says. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. okay. So the love of money will cause us to pierce ourselves with many sorrows. He, uh, trusting in our riches is gonna be the fall of us. Like these are all warnings for us to, to take heed of. You can't trust in your riches and seek the Lord's righteousness at the same time. You can't do it. And when we do trust in our riches as stewards, we fail in our stewardship. 
Because at that point, we've stopped using our currency as a means to gain for the Lord. And we've stopped seeking him first in how we dispense our finances if we were ever doing that. You know, God tells us and shows us how to prioritize him in our finances. And he's not a micromanager. This is the thing about our Lord. He's not a micromanager. He really just tells us what the priority of our finances ought to be. And then at some point and at multiple places in scripture, touches on every other thing that we could be doing with our currency in the modern world. Like it's honestly a really cool thing. But as far as spending goes, the types of allocating of our dollars that prioritize him directly, he's made sure to let us know what those things are and how we can be doing that. All right, so, um, you know, Sam, Sam preached the rest of my sermon for today, just a heads up in first service. In the Old Testament, we see these different types of spending laid out for us. We see the tithe, we see free will offerings, and we see sacrificial givings. So I'm going to talk about these things because prioritizing them in our spending habits and in our lives is the first step to prioritizing God in our lives and in our finances. So to start out, I'm going to provide brief explanations of free will offerings and sacrificial giving, and then I want to spend more time talking about the tithe. I think it deserves a, a, a deeper theological examination. Um, <clears throat> but I also want to point out that what, we, what we're going to look at here, a lot of this is outlined for us in the Old Testament, Okay. But in all these different financial exchanges that we're about to cover, as New Testament believers, the basis for church-age biblical giving is structured on these same principles, okay? And this is why we look to the Old Testament and, and see the examples that we have there. Okay, so offerings and sacrificial givings. So being willing to give over free will offerings and sacrificial givings in support of needs that arise throughout the local church congregation on a case-by-case basis are two ways to seek God first in our finances, okay? These are two ways that we can do that. These are both actions that a believer can take part in in addition to the tithe as these needs come about uh, throughout the congregation and they can take part in them on a voluntary basis. Uh, Both of these types of giving are sacrificial and show a willingness to invest in God's mission as he carries it out through local and biblical churches. Okay, so um, we're talking about free will offerings here. So if if you guys want to, you can go to Exodus 25, verses one through nine. You don't have to, you can just listen. But what we see in this passage, okay, is, is we see God instruct Moses to take up a special free will offering from the people, from the congregation, in order to fund the building of the tabernacle. So there could be a dwelling place built for the Lord among the people. So there's this need within the local church, uh, and Moses does what God tells him to do. He, 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 op- he, he makes it um, an option for people to give out of their own free will uh, some of their valuables to, to uh, fund the construction of this, of this dwelling place for the Lord. And, and that's what we see happen. The people do that. They, they construct it. Um, and, uh, and then the, the need is met by way of the congregation prioritizing God and their finances. Now, the same thing was done when we bought this building right here, the Meyer. Okay, so some of you weren't around when we first got it. Um, some of you were, though, and I don't know if you remember, but Sam, uh, from, the, from the pulpit and main service on a Tuesday night, said, you know, we're taking up a free will offering. We're going to, if you want to help, uh, you know, finance the construction, the purchase, and the remodeling of this building, you can do that. And then there was instructions on how to do that. So maybe, maybe you did that. 
Maybe some of you did that. Maybe some of you didn't. But if you did, okay, so just, just take a look at what you were a part of. Now, now the, the building itself is very pretty, isn't it? Uh, it's an awesome resource. Like, it's, it's used well uh, for the church needs. It was a need. Like, we needed more space, clearly. Um, but also, take a look around you, okay? Take a look around you. Like, the Lord has filled this place up. The Lord's filled it up. Decisions uh, have been made for the Lord in this room. You know, fruit has been added to our Bible study because of, you know, things that have happened in this room. People, you know, taking steps forward in faith, choosing to be self-sacrificial, you know, because of, of the space in this room. And it's not the room itself, right? It's everything that God's doing with the thing that you chose to to help fund by way of prioritizing God in your spending, okay? This was a financial decision that you may have made that prioritized God first, and he used it, and he's still using it. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 21 through 25, we see David, after a series of prideful mistakes, sacrificially give of his own finances to purchase um, some land uh, that God directed him to take ownership of, to build an altar on, to make a sacrifice on, and to bring cease to a plague that was wiping out Israel. Okay? We see David do this. We see a financial sacrifice, an exchange of finances that extended God's mercy to the people. Um, and in the church age, you know, our sacrificial giving financially supports missionaries and church plants sent out by the local church so that God's mercy and grace can be extended to the people outside the four walls of our own building and outside the, you know, the, 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 the limits of our own city that we live in, okay? Like, this is how we finance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how we prioritize the great commission in our finances. That's what sacrificial giving in the, in the church age does, now, in addition to these types of givings, like principally, there's a lot of other stuff that Christians can be doing to prioritize God and their finances. Uh, Christians should give bountifully as church-age believers. Sam had us go look at this in, in first service. They should give with cheerful hearts as scripture instructs, right? Because God loveth a cheerful giver. In support of brothers and sisters as, as needs arise throughout the congregation, preferring one another, as, as um, scripture states. We should also support the needy, widows, the fatherless, with our finances as well as we are able through the local church, okay? And that's an important detail is, is that, you know, all of these things are things that Christians do by way of the local church. And all of these things, when done with the right heart, with that cheerful heart, Seek first the Lord and his righteousness. They prioritize God. Okay, these are spinning patterns that you do not see the world necessarily taking part in. These are spinning patterns that make people look peculiar as they follow after the Lord. Okay, so then there's the tithe, okay? There's the tithe. And really, taking part in the tithe as a member of the local church is one way that believers can be seeking God first in their finances. It's the, it's the, it's the number one way that believers can be seeking God first in their finances. So the tithe for a follower of Jesus Christ is a, uh, and a member of the local church is the opportunity to give back to God the first of their fruits. 
the same fruits of which he provided to us entirely. Okay? Now the word tithe, tithe itself means tenth. That's what it means. And to break down simply what the tithe is, it's 10% of an individual's income taken from the total amount of income that someone has been prospered. And that's given back to God by way of the local church. That's what the tithe is. Okay, now we can read about it in, um, in places in the Old, in the Old Testament. Um, we, could look, we could read about it in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, where we see, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Okay, so, so this is talking about the tithe. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 10 says, and now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. Okay, so, so we see, you know, these are just a couple of places that we see the tithe laid out in the law of Moses. And what we see as we look at these things is it's an example, the tithe is an act of worship, right? That's what the tithe is. It's an act of worship towards the Lord and recognizing all of what he's provided to us. It shouldn't be something that we do to build ourselves up or to put ourselves on some righteous platform in our own lives. Uh, it's an act of lowering ourselves and demonstrating a heart posture that reveals how God, his kingdom, and his righteousness come first in our lives and in the management of our finances. Now, it also supports the work of the local church of which God uses as an institution to carry out his mission of reaching the lost and ministering on earth. Now, not every Christian or member of a local church is on the same page about whether or not a Christian should be tithing in the church age. Like, this is, this is something that's, you know, debated. Now, there are, there are people who take the position, and it's important to know this, guys, so that you cannot be swayed by incorrect, incorrect doctrine. Okay, that's why it's important to know this. There are people who take the position that say, since instruction for the tithe was given to us in the Mosaic law and not in the New Testament, and since Christ fulfilled the law of Moses through his sacrifice on our behalf, well, the, the law of the tithe is nailed to the cross, and, I'm, and, and we're free of it. We don't have to take part in it. Um, some Christians subscribe to that belief. And, and here's the thing. It's true to say we're not bound by the law of the tithe in the sense that our right relationship with God is not dependent on anything uh, that the law states and us taking part in those things. That's true because we live under the dispensation of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the economy of God that we live under. But Christians that take that position must ignore or be unaware of the fact that the tithe existed before the, before the law of Moses was ever delivered to the Israelites, okay? We see in Genesis 14, 20, that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, who was the king priest of Shalem and a representative of God on earth. Okay, now, he, now, now Abraham didn't do this in obligation to a law, right? He didn't do this in obligation to a law. It took place long before the tithe was delivered. Genesis 14, 20 says, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. We see Abraham do this. So this is the first tithe that we see take place in scripture. And it was made to a man that was both a king and a priest. So Melchizedek, by the way, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, was who is both our king and high priest to whom we tithe to. It's almost 
as if the Lord wanted us to have a picture of what the tithe would look like in the church age, right? It's almost as if he was, he was trying to tell us something. And the tithe that we read about in the law of Moses, it was actually codified into the law. It was structured into it based off what we see Abraham do here. It preceded the law. We also see Jacob at Bethel make a vow to continue to tithe to the Lord before the origination of the law of Moses also. Genesis 28, 22 says, And this stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. The tithe is a biblical principle that preceded the law and has been understood by God's people from the beginning. So again, it's true to say that we're not bound by any part of the law, but because the principle of tithing came before the law and that principle was not replaced by anything in the New Testament, we're still, we are still to live according to the tithe, the principle of the tithe as God's people. We are. Key point number four is this. Tithing has always been God's financial plan for the support of his earthly ministry. It's always been his plan. And in the church age of which we all live, God carries out his earthly ministry by way of the the church, sorry. That's why we tithe to the church. That's how he carries out his ministry. So it's not been done away with. Look, ultimately for us, the act of tithing in the local church is something that Christians should choose to take part in because of their understanding of what Jesus Christ took part in on our behalf. For me, that's enough. Like, that's enough for me. There's no amount of financial sacrifice or any other type of sacrifice that can amount to the sacrifice that he made for us while we were yet sinners, okay? So taking part in the tithe with the correct understanding of what it's for is the first way. It's the first way that Christians should be seeking God and his righteousness in their finances. It's an act of obedience, guys. That's what it is. You're not seeking the Lord first in your finances if you're not prioritizing these biblical types of spending that we just covered. And I, and I get that we're, like, we're young, and some people are like, well, I'm too broke. I'm too broke to, to, to prioritize any of this in my life. I get that. But to the New Testament believer, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, and that there be no gatherings when I come. So what Paul is telling the church is that, you know, with this percentage of our income going back to the Lord, it should be proportionate to what we bring in. You know, those who make a little, those who are like, I'm broke, We'll give a little. Those who make a lot will give a lot. Ten, you know, whatever. Ten percent of thirty thousand is a lot less than ten percent of two hundred thousand. It, it, you know, like it's not that it's not that 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 percentage amount that's produced in the giving that necessarily matters. Both these parties, nonetheless, are trusting, honoring, prioritizing, and worshiping the Lord the same, regardless of what that percentage produces, in proportion to the income they have been prospered, what they've brought in. You can't actually be too broke to biblically give. You can't be. Um, You can't. You know, key point number five is that God expects believers who are rich, poor, and anything in between to give back to him with what he's provided. 
And man, that's because he expects obedience and worship in this area of our lives. That's it. And let me point out what prioritizing God in our finances is not, okay? What it's not is living in such a way that, that makes sure we have everything we need and everything that we, that we think we need. We have everything we want plus everything we need before we decide if we're gonna do with our finances what God tells us plainly to do with our finances, okay? Like that's, that's not actually prioritizing God in your finances. Um, making this act of worship, the tithe, any of these types of giving that we just covered, an afterthought in your life. If it's an afterthought in your life, this means you're not, it, what it means is you're seeking yourself first in this aspect of your life. And therefore, you're not seeking God first with your whole life. You can be doing everything else that, that it makes sense for you to do in ministry, but operate like this in relation to biblical giving, and that makes you someone who's still not seeking the Lord first in your finances, which is compartmentalization of obedience to God's word. It's having these two different foundations, right? And, and you do that long enough, you do that long enough, and where you end up is, is you end up at the door. And, and it's not like a matter of like, you know, this, this is true of, of finances or anything else. But if you're halfway obedient to God, then eventually you're just saying, well, God's not worth following. That's the truth. That's where you end up. You never let God work in your life. You know, you were busy trying to get plugged into church rather than having a relationship with God. And when, and when the church couldn't meet your needs or something like that, or, you know, um, you say God's not worth following. None of this stuff is worth doing. And it's like, no, no, no. The, the, the reason, you, the reason we're, that's happening in the life of somebody is because you, you, never, you never got fully obedient to the Lord. You never got full of faith in that he could use you in your life. So you grew weary and well-doing or whatever it may be. But that all is reflected in our finances. You gotta get that. Like this is where obedience actually starts for a believer. And disciplers in the room who teach the giving lesson in discipleship with the authority of God's word at their back but do not faithfully prioritize biblical giving. By, you know, like, that's gotta generate some, like, some serious conviction, some conviction that should be changing your behavior immediately. You know? and, if, and if you can't respond to that conviction, like, quite honestly, it's, it should be called into question whether or not you're, you're actually fit to be investing God's word in the life of somebody else. Asking them and telling them that they got to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. You know, that's something to repent of today, disciples. And move forward from. And, and, and like, look, guys, you're hearing this from a guy who struggled with the concept of biblical giving early in my faith. Like, I remember getting saved eight years ago. I was dating my, 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 my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And, uh, you know, she brings up a tithe to me. I'm, I'm a new Christian. And I remember looking at her, and I made sure I made eye contact. And I was like, it makes no sense for me to give my money to the church. And, um, and I would hold to that for a couple of years. Like, I would. I'm uptight. I'm an uptight dude. Like, I can't, I can't bend over further than this. Like, it starts to hurt. This is, this is the joke about me being... George Costanza that Brandon, you know, 
systematically is pushed into everybody else's <laughs> repertoire. Uh, but, but yeah, like, you know, then, then, then I began to understand what the Bible says about the topic of biblical giving by way of discipleship. I mean, that's, that's, where, it's really, that's where it really started for me. I probably started to budge a little bit before that. But, but what, what happened was I was, I was shown where, where I could study it out in the Word, and I spent time looking at it. Again, because I'm uptight. It wasn't going to be enough for me just to hear it. I needed to understand it. Um, and as I grew in my relationship with the Lord, my maturity and my life grew with it. You know, and, and eventually I would become a faithful giver against all odds, against, against that, new, that new believer mindset. And you know, over the last few years, my, my wife and I have had to trust God with some really like hard financial decisions. Um, and uh, you know, like decisions that have made us have to hold tight to that promise that we see in Matthew 6, 33. That if, man, if I seek the Lord first and his righteousness, he's gonna supply all the needs of my family. Um, we've had to like really, really trust in that. You know, my wife went, went part-time and we lost a huge portion of income after being adjusted to the income we had. You know, our bills were based off, off that income. And um, man, like we decided that we would tithe more based on, um, that we would give more based on the proportion of money we were bringing in. And that freaked me out. I regretted it immediately in my flesh. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? But, um, but again, like I had to be earnest about praying that promise back to the Lord. God, I'm trusting you with my finances. I can trust you to provide for my family. As far as I could tell, he had no choice but to do it, right? Like I was trusting him. I was doing it. Um, and man, like... God blessed our finances in the season in a way that he had never blessed them prior to us trusting him in those decisions. Like out of nowhere, I got an unexpected promotion that came with a substantial raise. And like with all of that, we just kept trusting the Lord more and more. And now I'm in this position where I can't, where I know it's like, it's perfectly clear to me. I cannot afford to not give. I can't afford not to do it. I couldn't be so broke in any position where I wouldn't be able to not do it, because like, I know God's promises are true. Amen. He's proved it to me. I believe it. I know they're true, and I'm not bragging about my financial position. I'm bragging about something that God has done in my lives after I chose to trust in him. And it's like after Blade's message, what am I gonna do with that? I'm gonna steward it, right? I'm gonna share it. I can't afford to not use my money in a way that would restrict his supply for my household. I've learned that his supply for me and my house is better than anything I could supply otherwise. With less than 90% of my income, God can do so much more than I could do with all 100% of it, you know? Like, it's not even a thing for me anymore. There's joy in my heart when I give to the Lord because I know his promises are true. And I believe that we would all find that out if we truly sought him first in a non-compartmentalized way, if we didn't take the world's guidance in terms of what should be prioritized in our spending, instead of trusting God first in the season that you're in, you're gonna trust what the world tells you to trust, your currency, you're gonna hold tight to it, your currency that doesn't even have any real value outside of the agreements upon it, of which on every single version of it, it says, in God we trust, like, are we trying to, are we mocking him or is he reminding us? I, I don't know. I don't know. The world's perspective on money and spending 
says your wants are your needs. Your reputation is your life. Your wealth is your worth. Serve yourself with it. God's perspective on the world's perspective is, no, 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 your needs will be met by me. Your reputation on earth is actually supposed to be the least of your concerns. Your worth should be known by the fact that I sacrificed myself for you. Serve my purpose and my people before serving yourself. Guys, money is just a tool that's to be managed to spread his joy, his truth to, to a bunch of people who, who are chasing momentary happiness and personal truths, and, you know, and depending on the season that they're in. It's just a tool. It's nothing that should be ruling everything in our lives. God's looking at the Wu-Tang Clan. And he's saying, cash does not rule everything around you. He's saying, I rule everything around you. Glean from the Bible. I'll give you everything you need, y'all. Like, that's what God's saying. And I said, you know, I said this at the beginning. I do want this to be practical. So the practical thing that we should take away from today is don't prioritize yourself first in your spending. As the world does. Start seeking God first in this area of your life based on what the Bible says. I'm not going to tell you, you need to start tithing. I'm not going to tell you, you need to start sacrificially giving. You need to start offering. I'm not going to tell you to do any of these things. It's not actually the job of the guy up here, you know, to, to tell anybody to do anything. It's to, it's to present the truth of God's word. So I am presenting to you how it is that God tells us to spend our money in a way that prioritizes him and how he desires to bless those who with cheerful hearts take part in those actions. So do with that what you feel. But we need to ask ourselves a question right now. Believers in the room, we need to ask ourselves a question. Disciples, disciplers, Bible study leaders, and every single person in between, new and old Christian, we need to ask ourselves the question, does how you view and manage your finances in terms of money and spending truly seek the Lord first? Does it truly Or is it an afterthought for you? Has it always been an afterthought for you? Or are you a covetous lover of money? God knows what we are in terms of that question, guys. He knows it. There's no point in not like admitting it to ourselves what we are. He knows it. Our hearts are where our treasure is. Where's your heart at? You know, if you don't know how to answer that question, where's your heart at? What what, what is the thing you think about giving, giving yourself over to? You know, what do you prioritize in your spending? Do you operate from the world's perspective or from your Lord's perspective in terms of this question? Do you faithfully prioritize God in your finances by way of biblical giving? Do you? Worship team, if you want to come up. <laughs> um, guys, you know, throughout this whole study, what, you know, what I've just been reminded of personally is that we, ha- we have a good heavenly father who provides for us. You know, and that's the best thing that a father can do for their children is, is, is provide for them and guide them through that provision. Um, and and, and our, our God made himself of no reputation for us. He decided that, that we were worth him laying his life down. And he only expects a little bit of all that he gives to us back in return in support of what he's trying to do here on earth. And the truth is, like Sam said in first service, he deserves so much more than that. He deserves so much more than that. 
He deserves to be prioritized in every, in every single type of spending that, that, that we do. And we're going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. But plainly put, faithful Christians, true disciples of Jesus Christ, give worship to the Lord by way of their finances. Because they view them from his perspective. In addition to all the other ways that they choose to prioritize him, they choose to prioritize him in their finances as well. Don't be like the world seeking yourself first in your spending. Don't. The world sees that and it invalidates everything else that you say to be true of your faith when they see that. Man, if you were convicted by anything in today's message, anything at all, uh, you're, you're invited to come up and, and, and speak to one of, our, one of our counselors who are gonna be standing up here prepared to counsel. Um, man, guys, move with, with your conviction. Like, Lay some things down if you need to. Begin the process of changing your behavior in your finances. It's not some annoying topic that young people can't be bothered with. It's one of the ways that we are to seek the Lord first with our lives, okay? I'm gonna pray us out, but counselors, if you would come up. God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for uh, this, this time. God, I pray that Man, God, that we would take honest accounts of ourselves. God, we, we, some of us like to say we're good with our finances, but, you know, like we just mean that in a, in a worldly sense. Like, God, are we good with our finances and that we prioritize you with them? I pray that for, for those of us who need to, we would, we would be moved to, to, to repent, to have a conversation, to maybe have a, to ask for advice on whether or not um, they are what they think they are, or if they are, you know, if they are erring from the faith in pursuit of something else. Um, God, you're worth every bit of our lives, uh, and we're grateful for all that you do. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.